Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Engine podcast. Today, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Chris Hansen, Three Pillars Senior Vice President of our Communications, Media, and Technology Portfolio. And we're thrilled to welcome Ian Wright, Chief Insights Data Officer at Equifax's marketing business as our guest today. Ian's experience spans driving Equifax's cross-business strategies, capturing the attention of previously untapped non-traditional markets. And in 2021, he oversaw Equifax's largest year-over-year growth in the marketing business's history. He also has a black belt in marketing analysis. Ian, thank you for joining the show today. As Chief Insights Officer, what does it mean and what are your main goals at Equifax? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me today. Um, really look forward to this conversation. So as a, a Chief Insights Officer, and it is a little bit of a new title in the marketplace. When I talk to people, they do ask that question. What do you do? What are your goals? And being part of Equifax, we're a data business. So I really try to focus on creating data insights that are going to help our clients meet their existing challenges, but also uh, just as importantly, keep track of what's going on in the market, some trends that I'm starting to see to try to predict what their challenges might be in the near future and future. So I can then you know, go inside the factory and see what sort of insights we already have and data resources and assets we can bring to bear to, to meet those challenges. But then uh, where we might have some gaps, you know, engage some partnerships, look for new data, maybe for acquisition to complete our portfolio so we can make sure that we're meeting client needs in our existing portfolio, but also as we look to expand into adjacent industries. So it's a lot of fun because I'm a data geek and I get to do work with data, you know, 365 every day of the year. That's so interesting. And, and so you're staying one step ahead of your clients, seeing what their markets are up to, how they're changing, crafting those data solutions. In your role, how do you inspire, nurture, support that culture of innovation? Yeah, so it can be challenging. One of the things that I try to do in particular is to be a voice of the market for our clients and tell our, our internal resources what's going on as new challenges, as developments, as opportunities. Um, and I do that by talking directly, directly to our clients, you know, attending industry events, being a panelist and, and conversations. So really just trying to be a sponge on what's going on in the market. But then internally also working with our resources to, to let them know we don't always have to hit a home run, right? If we can chip away and, and help a client with a problem in an iterative process, maybe focus on what's either most immediate as a need for them or maybe the most important challenge they're facing, we can satisfy that need, but grow from there. So I think it's always trying to understand what's going on in the market, having that freedom internally of letting folks investigate new concepts and new ways that we can, we can meet our clients. But probably the third part is, is tracking innovation and making it an important part of what we do. We have a vitality index, which I think a lot of companies use where we track how much revenue we are generating from products that we introduced in the last three years. We always have a focus on trying to make sure we've got a healthy vitality index, not so much because we want to make sure you know, we're hitting a specific number, but just to ensure that we're staying fresh, we're staying innovative, we're staying mindful of how the market's moving and not relying maybe on some of our legacy products. So it's a difficult uh sort of full-time responsibility, but it's also something that can keep the job kind of new and 
So Ian, you mentioned a few ways in which you get feedback from your clients. And I'm just wondering if there's one really important, most impactful way to gain insights from your customer base. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any substitute for actually going out and meeting with clients in person to really kind of meet them in their office, to understand what they're currently faced with, to have informal meetings with them, maybe at conferences in the hallways. But there really isn't a, a replacement to me uh, of actually speaking directly to clients and, and trying to understand, you know, day to day what their challenges are. You know, you can supplement that with, with market research and, and talking to, to other partners who are serving the same market, really speaking to clients is number one. That's been difficult during COVID. Uh, you know, some of my efforts to try to go visit clients have been tampered by different corporate policies and just an overall uneasiness about meeting. But I really look forward to hopefully in the near future when we can start doing that again. Can you share with us maybe some digital product launches that received extremely positive feedback and then those that fell flat or maybe didn't engage at the level that you assume they would? And the real piece of this question, right? the real point of this question is what lessons did you and the team learn as a result? Sure, sure. Yeah. And I mentioned COVID just a minute ago. So with the impact of COVID, lots of financial services firms were all evaluating how to transform digitally, right? To have a customer experience that was either mobile first or moved a lot more of my interactions online and trying to make that as number one, as frictionless as possible, but number two, as personalized as possible. So we had several clients that we worked with to try to help them with their account opening flows and their overall client interactions for identifying opportunities with clients who might want to move up with a new product who, let's say, have wealth at a level that says warrants that they should be introduced to a financial advisor. So we didn't maybe sit on the front end of their full digital transformation process, but we informed that process with real-time calls to our data assets so we could help uh, their customer journey be more personalized. We could help them identify opportunity when you know, people are opening a, a bank account, they're more likely to reconsider their other financial uh, relationships. So banks could maybe capture a, a larger share of wallet. So that very data-focused sort of stay in our lane application is working very well. One area which maybe we went a little too far uh, several years ago, we had acquired through an acquisition uh, a firm that was involved with marketing attribution. And so we started to work with clients in, in seeking their interest in this attribution engine, used a great hidden Markov model for the attribution metrics, but really was a step too far in our market presence. Right, we're not so heavily involved in in advertising, so our clients didn't look to us to provide that sort of uh, solution, and it was hard for us to not only have that sort of presence in our clients uh, with our clients, but also for ourselves to understand that business fully. So we decided to pull back from that offering after giving it a go for two years, and really the lesson learned for us was to stick to our knitting. We're a data provider in the market, and we do provide services around that. But that's really the value that we can provide clients is differentiated insights that aren't me too, that perform, and that we really know data and can help them understand data that's going to perform and data maybe that's at a lower quality. So being that trusted data advisor is really the position that we sort of resolved around. 
That is really interesting. I would never think Equifax would be, you know, as a, a partner for marketing attribution. So I could see where some of those decisions could to get, get you out of your wheelhouse and potentially dilute the overall data offering. Really, really interesting. And I, I come from a background in, in marketing and marketing technology. And I know the challenges around those types of technologies as well. Really good feedback there. I'm thinking about, so thinking as a, as a former product guy, I'm thinking about how Equifax looks at the product models that you have and your customer base. In, in the next 10 years or so, do you think, is Equifax going to focus on sort of a more horizontal SaaS model serving a broad set of your customers or go more specific into specific cu- customer bases or, or prospective customer bases and create a more vertical SaaS solution? Yeah, so my answer is going to be yes. We're going to um, try to do both. And I think the two actually do play very well together. And maybe first I'll focus on that that vertical niche solution. And I think you see this in the marketplace too, where there's a, a portion of the market, maybe mid-tier banks for us or, or, or credit unions and smaller credit unions that have specific needs that maybe some of the national level banks don't have or that they can satisfy on their own. So we work in those portions of verticals to try to help clients maybe not get information, but get answers. So you could think about a red, yellow, green dashboard uh, that maybe a smaller bank needs because they don't have, you know, 50, 60 analysts that are able to, to work with data and, and provide that sort of information back to their back to their client, internal client. So I think we're going to see continued vertical specialization in those areas. But once we find success there, and I think this is again true in the market, those sorts of applications then have a way to find themselves up onto the enterprise level where they become part of a horizontal solution. So maybe we're having a lead role when we're working with a more niche solution with a mid-tier bank, and we're having more of a partnership or a co-opetition, cooperative sort of relationship as part of a solution that is enterprise-wide where we can provide that differentiated. You know, we're working with some wealth management platforms that have significant functionality for, for managing a book, but don't really have a marketing module. And that's where our vertical success then can be used to bolt on this new functionality. And then it provides that platform either with a stickier solution, because um, they're satisfying more needs, or also a revenue opportunity uh, to have a marketing module as part of that platform. As more and more industries digitally accelerate, how do you see the information services industry changing and evolving with with that digital acceleration need? Yeah, and great point about accelerating. It's hard to believe that can accelerate even more quickly than it has, but I I agree with you. I think it will. And part of it might be seeing what's been successful in other parts. They'll really migrate over here. And also those regulatory frameworks sort of accelerate their implementation in our market. But I mean, overall, you know, the lowering of development costs of access to data, of technologies that don't require extended amounts of time to, to create, you know, a functional uh, solution are really fostering uh, innovation. So I think we're going to continue to see these nimble players sprout up, maybe in those um, niche applications that we were just talking about and provide these solutions. But also the major players aren't going to go away. You know, your your walled gardens for in the marketing and advertising space or social media giants will then look at the success smaller solutions and integrate them uh, into their catalogs. I, I think one development that I'm really looking forward to see how it plays out is the introduction of super apps in the United States. 
The other parts of the world, especially in Asia with Alipay and WeChat, have been successful as introducing these applications that can really provide you with a full gateway into what's available digitally. In the U.S., we see Uber maybe trying to move in that space, maybe a Facebook, but it really hasn't played out yet. And I'm really interested to see how that progresses in our market. Okay, something that we that we ask of each of our guests on the podcast, and we're, we're many, many years into this podcast, and this is, these, these are the fun questions. Call it the speed round. Here we go. First thing that comes to your mind, what's your favorite piece of technology? Yeah, it's definitely my Kindle. It's a great piece of technology. You know, I can keep my library on it at all times. You know, back in the day when I would you know, fly from the East Coast to the West Coast, I'd get a nice thick book that might weigh a couple pounds, you know, maybe a Wheel of Time book. And I'd have to find a spot to put it in my backpack. This Kindle is, is fantastic because I can have my whole library there. So it's been really something that I don't want to say it's transformational, but it's really had a long-term positive impact in my life. It's one of those pieces of technology that I haven't used for six months and then gotten bored of and dropped. The only thing that that does give me a little pause about it, though, is that then I'm kind of beholden to one firm to present me with my content. So, so that's one concern. But overall, yeah, I love my Kindle. And what's your first memory of an interaction with technology? So I'm going to hit the geezer button. I remember when I was in elementary school in the mid to late 1970s, and kids started looking down at what was in their palms. I think it was the first you know, introduction of what we have today you know, all over the place with, with nerd neck or you know, forward neck. But there was a game that Mattel put out called Digital Basketball, and it used these little red dashes that could move around into uh, fixed areas and parts of the screen and then a round uh, button that would then be the basketball. Yeah, I'd have a lot of imagination to, to consider that this was Mattel basketball, but Mattel basketball uh, was my first sort of love of technology. I think I had the football game, not the basketball game. I, I think yeah. I aspirationally wanted the basketball and the baseball and football. So I'm, 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 if you hit the geezer button, I'm right there with you. <laughs> you know, I'm sure if we would have kept our handsets today, they'd be worth a lot of money. I, I'm sure. In, in the original packaging, I'm sure they're worth a lot. Yeah. Absolutely. What's, so, so fast forward to today, what's your most used app on your phone other than email and Slack and maybe your news apps? What, what's your most, what's your go-to app? So if I'm going to reference my personal phone, I'm going to say a, a sports app called The Score. I love to be able to check scores on the teams I'm following. And I've, I've got some, some interest in the English Premier League as an Aston Villa fan, so I can check scores you know, not only for the leagues we have here, but also abroad. And I love the entertainment value of going into the chat near a game and near the end of a game and seeing folks who are betting on, on it saying it's rigged. It doesn't matter which game you're, you're, you're following, which sport you're following. There are always going to be some people that put, you know, a couple clown emojis out there. Then, hey, this is rigged. The refs are getting paid. So it just gives me a chuckle every time I see that. Amazing. When what's the piece of advice that you'd leverage throughout your career that someone on this podcast listening it could be helpful for them? 
So I'm going to cheat and give you maybe two two answers. One is that success isn't a zero sum game, you know, especially in the industry I'm in. But I think just overall, which is true, don't throw people under the bus to get ahead. You know, your your career is a long journey. It's great to build a network around around you. There are going to be times where you can help people. You know, who are in your circle, but there are also going to be times where they can help you. So really, someone doesn't have to lose for, for you. I'm a strong believer in, you know, success raises all boats. Uh, so my success can help you and your success can help me. And we all have the same, pretty much have the same goals with our career and, and wanted to be successful and, and making a difference with those around us. And two, maybe somewhat related, is don't take yourself too seriously. Work takes up too too much time to be stressed. You know, take it seriously as we just talked about. Career is very important, but also you have a whole other part of your life that doesn't take up those eight hours, nine hours, and hopefully you can you can find time to really explore the interests that really define who you are overall as a person beyond who you are at work. You know, another point to say at the end of what I just said, part of looking at that you're not who you are at work all the time, you're, you're more than that. It's really one of the areas I suffer with is with imposter syndrome, that I have to be perfect in everything. And work, you know, is an area where you're constantly judged. So it, it really is something that I think a lot of people either know they struggle with or maybe don't understand they struggle with, which cause, but still causes lots of stress in their life. So especially men, I think, don't always give themselves the, the kind of guidance or give themselves the ability to understand that you know, we don't have to be perfect. We're not perfect. There are going to be times where we get things wrong. Everyone's going to get something wrong. Let's learn from those instances and move forward with it. Let's also be gracious when somebody else uh, makes a mistake. But I think, you know, if you've made yourself a, a career and you've gotten uh, to a certain level in your career, that's there for a reason. It's not going to be uh, something that just happened. It's going to be because you can contribute and, and really provide value. So it, it's imposter syndrome, I think, is something that's more widespread than, than we acknowledge. I agree. Thank you for, for, the, for the advice. It's going to be so helpful to this community, to our community of listeners. And just the, the conversation overall today was so deeply insightful. I want to thank you for joining Chris and I, and it's been a real honor to have you join the Innovation Engine. Well, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun and, and anytime. This has been an episode of the Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com.